Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad that I've got a gathering of uh, amazing power panel today. I've got quality and quantity today, just so you know. <laughs> I've got virtually everybody around the uh, studio table today. And uh, I've got Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgon, and Jeff Verdorn as my power panel today, which means we're going to have a, a lively two hours of Guy Talk today, which means get your questions over you know the text line number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So whatever question you have about the Bible, about God, about whatever kind of faith denomination uh, you've had um, a discussion about, just anything, we'll, we'll try to answer any question you have. We're looking forward to hearing from you. All right, gentlemen, first of all, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Yeah, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Yeah. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Everyone is uh, <laughs> smiling and it seemed to be in a good mood. Why not? Why not is right. That's it's right. guy talk. This right. is a, Looks are deceiving, Bill. Yeah, I know. This, is a, <laughs> this is a gift. Look at the gift we have. We talk to people for two hours about the Lord. It Come doesn't on. get any better, it honestly. It doesn't get any better. No. All right. Let's dig into the first question, and this question comes from our friend Jim out in Connecticut, and he wants to talk about um, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Mm-hmm. So he's got a number of questions, and I'm going to kind of lay them all out, because I think between all of us, we can answer these questions. So let's try. Here's the question, um, 1 Samuel 10, we're talking about Saul. What a curious man. So he's out looking for the lost donkeys and meets Samuel, who anoints him king. Samuel gives his very specific instruction, Rachel's grave, three men at the Oak of Tabor, a group of prophets prophesying, etc. So all these things occur after being anointed by Samuel. And then verse 16 Saul doesn't mention all these wonderful things to his uncle when asked, so what did Samuel say to you? Oh, he said the donkeys were safe. So that's his primary question. Why, 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 why is that all he said? Well, you know, it's an interesting text. And thinking about it, the people wanted a king, like the surrounding people. And Samuel went to the Lord and talk to the Lord about it, and the Lord said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And I think that's an important thing to realize right away. Giving them Saul as king, I don't think was a blessing, really, in the beginning. David became the blessing later on. Saul, throughout his life, even though he was the tallest and he was the most handsome, he really didn't have the heart of the Lord as we understand the heart of the Lord, and the people wound up with a king just like the other kings around them. And it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And I think it's the focus of Saul that when he was asked about what he had seen, he talks about the donkeys when he had just been in the presence of one of the Lord's prophets and he had seen the Lord do things that should have woke him up and given him an under insight into what the Lord was doing. But he didn't. And we know in his life, uh, he didn't have a very good life as king over Israel. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think there's some other implications about this because it talks about the fact his uncle. So who is he talking about? Some scholars have mistakenly said it was um, Abner, but the fact of the matter is later on in Scripture we're told that the uncle that he's talking with is Ner, which is Abner's father. And so him not wanting to convey what actually transpired between him and Samuel is, is not uncommon because the same thing happened with David. When David was anointed king, it wasn't made public until much later. Right. Mm. But I think there, and, and again, this is just an opinion, but I think that given the, the character of Abner, now Abner, you have to understand, ended up being the right hand of um, Saul uh, over his armies. And then when both um, you know, Saul and his son Jonathan were killed on Mount Galboa, he wanted to install the son of Saul, Ibosheth, and um, against David. And so finally he capitulates, comes across on David's side, Abner uh, being seen in some cases as duplicitous, um, is ultimately murdered by Joab, who is the, the general of the armies of, of David. And so you can see in some of the nature and character of Abner, maybe some suspicions. Also, there's this idea that Abiel had this great estate and, and um, Saul's uh, father, Kish, was in line to receive that estate. But the next in line was Ner, the father of Abner. And so when he, it could have been why he's asking, well, what did Samuel say? That it had some implication because of Saul's out of the picture that maybe he's next in line oh, for the property. So there's, there's possible reasons why he, he withheld the rest of the information from his uncle. It could be because he didn't trust his uncle or it could simply because he may have received messages not recorded, of course, in 1 Samuel. To, for Samuel to, to have him keep that secret until it, the public declaration is made. That's practically the exact answer I was going to give. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I'm so. in good company. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Greg Borgon, for that. I see Saul as a reluctant king given to Israel by a reluctant God. God had just told Israel that I will be your king. I will lead you. I will fight your battles for you. And Israel comes to God and says, give us a king like the other nations to lead us and to fight our battles for us. And uh, and so I see it, it. God wanted to be their king, and they asked for an earthly king, and that was Saul, the first king. And, and I also like to point out with Saul that he he didn't finish well. <laughs> you know, God says he took his spirit from Saul. Now, theologians debate whether or not Saul was saved or not. I believe he had faith in God, but God did take his spirit from him uh, before he died in, in battle. And I think that's a reflection of the Old Testament reality that God gave the spirit to some mm-hmm. for a specific time for specific purposes, to kings, to prophets, to people who worked on the temple and so on. And people use that example and try to apply it to the New Testament. And I like to point out that in the New Testament, Jesus said he would give us the Holy Spirit and he would be with us forever as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Nicely done. Thank you, Jeff. All right, let me ask a couple more questions about this passage in 1 Samuel 10. If you just joined us, this is Guy Talk. So get your questions over to us, 877-933-2484. So the question is, why is he hiding among the supplies when Samuel is going to make him king? For such a strapping, impressive guy, 
Is he reluctant, a coward? What's going on here? I'm curious. Well, I think he was just fearful of the responsibility. I mean, when the light is shined on you and you now, um, it's one thing to embrace authority. It's another thing to embrace the responsibility that goes along with the authority. So maybe he was just feeling the weight of it, but he was fearful of it. And so consequently, he hid. I just think that that would be a common reaction for many, given that kind of an opportunity. Hey, you're going to be president of the United States. No, who, me? <laughs> you know, I'm going to hide behind uh, something. So the idea, I think, is just that he was fearful. And, and he was, besides that, we have to understand that Saul was impetuous. He was always running ahead of Samuel and also running ahead of God. He was assuming um, prerogatives that weren't his based out of maybe compunction or I don't think it was a lack of courage because he became very courageous. I mean, he saved them from the Philistines. He was, he was a, a tremendous warrior in battle, so I don't think that was it. But I just think it was the weight that he was receiving uh, in terms of the responsibility to go along with the authority. Mm. Nicely done, gentlemen. Nice start. I'll let, let me ask you a question about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So get your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2. question is, how do I practically walk this out? Because my husband is the one who refuses to obey the good news. I struggle to submit to my husband when his behaviors and actions are not in line with Scripture or Christ. Who would like to go first? This is live, live radio. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to go first. I'm not afraid of this text at all. I think what we're seeing here is that Paul is, or Peter's telling the wives in this situation, look, you're in a difficult situation with your husband. He's not the kind of person he ought to be. But your response to your husband is not simply to him. It's really to the Lord, because you are a woman of the Lord. In that being that woman of the Lord, there is an opportunity where maybe your husband will have the enlightenment he needs from the Holy Spirit to wake up and respond. Um, I just went through this as a pastor with a couple different families, almost the exact same story, um, where in one situation, the husband, totally neglectful, never complimentary to his wife, all that through. And she said, how can I continue to do this as a Christian after all these years? Because nobody's there to comfort me. Nobody's there to love me. Nobody's there to support me. And the dilemma she has is that the church doesn't know how to gather around somebody like that and help them in that situation. In the other one, the woman was not only being verbally abused by her husband, he was physically abusive. And and when you get to that point of physical abuse, it's very hard for any woman, I don't care how Christ-like you are, to live that day after day after day and to stay faithful to being there to try to win him the Lord. In those cases, as a pastor, I've actually helped women get into halfway houses or get out of that Mm -hmm. situation. And uh, we, as a group of men, then tried to go confront the husband. I'd like to tell you it's always gone well and we've been successful, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It hasn't. Many of those men just wouldn't even open the door or shut the door on us. So God says, children submit to your parents. He says for citizens to submit to their government. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. By the way, husbands, give yourself up as Christ gave himself up for the church. Uh, That Ephesians passage about husband and wife says, submit to one another then as to the Lord. It doesn't say to submit to righteous parents and really good parents. He doesn't say 
obey the governments, the authority that God has put over you when they do godly things in the same way for, for wives to their husbands. There are imperfect parents, there are imperfect governments, and there are imperfect husbands. Now, if they ever try to influence you to do something unbiblical or ungodly, that's where you draw the line, absolutely. But otherwise, submit. And it's it's easier to submit to the righteous than not, but God still calls us to. I think there's there's also a, a ramification to this passage because if it, when when you read it, it says that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, simply means that they are to be a testimony even against uh, the abusive husband that they might have, that there to be a testimony for the Lord. I, God does not expect them to be a doormat. He doesn't expect them to mm-hmm. submit to uh, emotional or, or sexual abuse or any of that. That You're absolutely right. That's where you draw the line. But she's to live a life mm-hmm. of godliness in his face because... You know, I tell guys all the time in my ministry, nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and honor under God's authority, people ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? They can't get past a life well lived. So I think this passage is talking about living a life um, of godliness to honor God in front and with their spouse. The other aspect of it is, is unconditional love. I mean, when we take a look at what the kind of love that that First Corinthians talks about, it's a genuine concern for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even if they're unlikable. So what this is saying is you don't set up barriers because you have an abusive husband. You don't try to trip them up. Uh, what you're trying to do is to do what's in their best interest, even if they don't understand the husband, that is, doesn't understand what's in their best interest. You're always acting in their best interest. All right. Well, Mike. We need to take a little break here. Yeah, um, so if you have a question, uh, send it over. It's time for more Guy Talk today, 877-933-2484. I don't know if you guys grew up watching cartoons. I did. Did you guys watch cartoons? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know the nice thing is, as you get older, you grow out of that, you mature, you know, which is nice. So we'll take a short break and be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. So glad to have you with me today. We're doing Guy Talk, and guys who talk are ready and available and sitting here waiting for your questions. So I've got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgon, and Jeff Verdorn sitting around the studio table. We are chomping at the bit to get to your questions, so send it over, 877-933-2484. During the break, we were talking about this verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We're not done with this one, are we, gents? No. I don't think so. I think one of the things that we need to add to what we are talking about, so the, the wife submitting to the husband, and, uh, and that's part of it, but there's a big other part of it, and that is to pray for your husband. Earnestly pray for your husband. Remember, as Greg was talking about, this is to win him over. And so pray that the Lord will work in his life to bring him to that point, if he's not a believer, obviously the first point to bring him to a point of faith so that he believes and is saved, uh, but also for uh, just righteous behavior so that he treats you as God has intended him to treat you. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie War Room, but it's a wonderful movie about basically this type of situation where the husband is drifting away, about to have an affair. The woman turns to prayer, turns to God, and their marriage is transformed. I had a 75-year-old woman teach me a lesson about these very verses and also my six-year-old niece when she was six years old. We had studied this first Peter, and she came up to me after class and she goes, you know, my husband and I have been married for 45 years. He's a very righteous man, but he's still not easy to live with. Okay, yeah, well, we're dealing with people. That's part of the issue. But my six-year-old niece uh, broke a lamp in her room, and my brother went into the room and said, Charlene, what did you just do? And in a deadpan face, she looked at him and she goes, it was a squirrel that broke in through the window and knocked it over. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. We always have a tendency to want to blame somebody else for our behavior. It's my husband. It's my kids. It's the church I go to. It's the the government. It's that. Where the Word of God says, the only one you're accountable to in the end is Jesus. And you should be doing it. You should treat your spouse, both male and female, with absolute dignity and love and Mm. service because you're doing it for Jesus. If you're simply doing it for the individual, well, that's a roller coaster ride. We're up and down all over the place. I cannot tell you all the people I've counseled that have come in, and when they wanted to get married, oh, there's nobody like Susan. There's nobody like Bill. They're the most wonderful people in the world. And six months later, it was like they didn't even know this person anymore because the infatuation was gone. Mm. And that's when I really began to teach them that love is a choice. Get the emotion out of it and get your preferences out of it and make it a choice because you made a covenant with Jesus on the day you got married. I was speaking uh, to uh, a group of men in Belfast and Odyssey Arena. It was a gathering of men. There were about 4,000 there, but in my workshop, 2,000 of them ended up showing up. And what I did in the message is I challenged the men. I said, I'm going to give you a challenge that many of you will not have the courage to accept. And then I was dead silent. And I said, well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe it's not the right time to do it. I kept that on for a little while, and finally a guy stood up and yelled out, Tell us! Tell us! I said, I want you to outserve your wife and expect nothing in return for the next three weeks. Hmm. Good word. And I said to them, everything you do should be seen as an act of worship to God regardless of the results. You're not doing it to manipulate a result. You're doing it as an act of worship to God. They just happen to be the beneficiary. Good word. I love that because that's exactly what we need to be teaching people. Your response is always to Jesus and what he's done for you. Because let's face it, your spouse, your kids, the people you work with are up and down. You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. But your judgment on them really comes from your relationship with the Lord. Yeah, that's really good. For some reason, my text line froze up, so I'm just waiting waiting for that to kick in. So you guys talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> What's the question that plagues you, Bill, day and night? The question that plagues me? Yeah. Do you have a question oh, we good. can answer? The questions have just come back. <laughs> <laughs> what good timing that was. Um, let's see here. Uh, first of all, listener just said, I just learned a, a new word from your guest, compunction. Who is that? I'm looking at, I'm looking at your direction, I didn't say compunction. Did you, Greg? I may must have. have been Greg. Yeah, it's probably you, Greg. No. Probably me. <laughs> you and your fancy words. All right, here's a question. Jacob told Joseph to make sure he was buried out of Egypt. Also, Joseph wanted to make sure his bones were not left in Egypt. Why is it so important where somebody's buried or where their bones are? 
There's that awkward pause. Yeah. I don't know the why. He did say he didn't want to be left there. I, I mean, it goes to the heart of God's promise that he'd never leave his people in Egypt. Yeah. And uh, knowing that, and, and by the way, Joseph honored his father's request and took his bones and they were buried at, I think they're buried at Hebron, I believe, where Jacob's bones were were buried. And uh, and so he honored the request. But the the why question is a tough one. Well, during the patriarchal period, families were lived together, celebrated together, and were buried together. They had family tombs, large ones in many cases that even we can even see threads of that in the New Testament, but in the patriarchal times, being a part of your being back with your family again. I don't think Joseph ever saw himself as an Egyptian. I I think he saw himself as a temporary Egyptian, Mm -hmm. but at the heart of it, he was a Hebrew. Yep. And there are two reasons that I see in this. Just recently, a family found the body in Vietnam of their son who died during the Vietnamese War. Mm -hmm. And that was like 60 years ago. But they're thrilled that he's coming home and going to be buried in their hometown in their cemetery. There's something about that, about the family reunification. The other part of that is this. Egypt did not honor Yahweh. Egypt was a pagan society. And as the people began to understand the nature of of the Lord, and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and whatever— and the, the, what the Lord was doing, they didn't want to be buried apart from their family because their family held on to the same basic beliefs they did. But certainly Pharaoh and the Egyptian people did not want to, and they didn't want to be left there in that land. And so I think it's, it's a combination of those things. All right. Nicely done. We have time for your question. We're plenty of guy talk today, so let me know what questions you'd like to ask the power panel. The number to text over is 877 877- 933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We've got a really wonderful day of forgiveness coming up Wednesday, June 28th. And I am excited about that. I've got some spectacular guests already uh, lined up for you to hear a story of forgiveness that will blow your mind. And so every program that day is going to focus on forgiveness throughout the network. So If you listen to Faith Radio throughout the day, you're going to hear a lot of amazing stories because forgiveness is so important. So every conversation will be focused on what the Bible says about forgiving others. And there's going to be lots of powerful stories of why you should and how to do it. We're not going to just say it and leave you hanging out to dry. We're going to help you. We're going to encourage you and help you work to find peace in troubled relationships. That's coming up on June 28th. So again, Guide Talk, let me know what questions you have, 877-933-2484. My panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgond, and Jeff Verdorn. After a short break, I promise we'll be right back.
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Welcome. It's time for God Talk. Guys who talk. I've got a great power panel here today. Here's the way this works. You just ask questions and they do their best to answer your questions. And maybe you've had one for a long time. Maybe you've wanted to ask your own pastor a question, but it's felt awkward. Now you can just ask these guys. They'll answer it for you <laughs> or do their best. Tom Parrish, Greg Borgond, and Jeff Verdorn are my guests, and they're ready, ready for your questions. All right, here's one. This is a sad day. Uh, an ex-husband just died. He was 79. Mm. When he was younger, he was antagonistic to the gospel, probably wasn't saved. Where is the comfort? You know, Paul writes for believers that we mourn when someone dies, but not like those who have no hope. Um, I've been to believers' funerals, and I've been to unbelievers' funerals, and they're they're really two different things. They are. I mean, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, um, you have eternal life, and you will be united with all of those who also believe in Jesus. Uh, where's the hope um, for someone who isn't saved, that's a real tough one because yes. there's a day of judgment that comes for those who haven't believed. Um, the the in-depth, in look, Paul says that it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. That's the reality of the biblical reality of God's plan for those who live on earth. He gives them a chance in this life to believe and be saved or to not believe and to not be saved. So the question is really, where's the hope in that? There, there, I, I can't give you biblical hope from God because for that person who's died. It's just not available from Scripture. I know this, that the Lord himself has done everything in that person's life to give them the opportunities to respond. We can't always see what he's doing, but he is moving and he is doing things and trying to do that. Unfortunately, we have free will, and we can ignore the Lord and whatever— I have been with an, a lot of people that the moment they died, the one thing I've discovered is how many atheists on their deathbed want to talk to me about forgiveness in Jesus, even though they've ignored it all their life. And I have literally seen people in their deathbed break down in tears and repent and say, I have wrecked my life. I should have served the Lord and I didn't. I was selfish. Can he ever forgive me? And there's nothing more fun to be able to say, Jesus certainly can't forgive you if you throw yourself at his feet as Lord and Savior. And I've had people do that and then die a few minutes later. I've had relatives really quick. Let me jump. I've had relatives that I know were not saved, that have passed away. Um, and it, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's a hard situation. And I, I think the only thing that we can do for those of us who are left is to preach to the living, to preach with those who left. If you know someone else who's close with you, close to you that doesn't know the Lord, um, that's a motivating factor to preach the gospel to them. The only thing that you can really celebrate in the life of somebody who doesn't know Christ and you know what their ultimate future is going to be is how they live their past. So that's why you hear at uh, funerals of people who aren't saved, what they've done with their life, whatever merit that uh, can be derived from how they lived their life, what will last after them, the aroma that's left in the nostrils of those God's called them that's called to to serve, but in this case, what's the aroma that was left? So that's the only thing that I can celebrate is what's happened in the past. They've already decided what their future is going to be. We can't do anything about that, so you can't celebrate some fictitious idea that, well, they're going to be with their loved ones. 
The fact of the matter is what you can celebrate is how they lived their life up to the time they died. Well done. Thank you, Greg Borgond. All right. We were talking earlier about uh, the, the bones being buried. That stimulated some people to ask the question about cremation. And the question is, what are your, your thoughts, your opinions on cremation? I've heard some say you should do it you should do it for when we come back. I'm not sure what that means, but what are your thoughts on cremation? That's probably for the resurrection of the body is what they're referring to. Mm -hmm. When we come back as part of the resurrection, I think Christians have been hesitant to uh, cremate their loved ones, uh, primarily because the the pagan worlds uh, were burned their dead often, and it's a practice mm -hmm. that the Jews did not. The Jews always buried their dead and didn't burn their dead. And that custom, I think, has worked its way into the church a bit, um, being kind of an end times teacher and love to teach about our future inheritance and our future glorification. You know, we receive a new glorified body, just like Christ received a new glorified body. So too, we will be raised imperishable, just like Jesus was. Um, it doesn't matter. I do not believe that scripture indicates that it matters how you dispose of your earthly body. It's going to return to the dust of the ground. Is there anything left of Paul's body today? Is there is there a, a piece, a speck of his body that's anywhere left? But he will be glorified. There have been Christians who have been blown up and, and eaten, and there's nothing left of their body. Our resurrected, glorified body is not dependent on our earthly physical body. He's going to give us a new glorified body. So... Uh, I've I've read a stat that up to 50% of our country today is being uh, cremated today when it used to be a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it matters for our future resurrection, how we dispose of the yeah, physical earthly body. I would agree. We agree. All right. Thank you for that. Um, here's an interesting question. If I'm not mistaken, when Noah came off the ark, God told him every living thing I have given you to eat. Am I misunderstanding something here? And I thought that there were clean animals and unclean animals. Or did this not begin until the law came down to Moses? Well, basically, the law became the critical factor because up to that point, there was no law against that. And so Moses, I mean, Noah could literally eat anything. Now, the Jews understood the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws, and they adhered to those. And I think the Lord did that for good reason. However, when the church came along and Peter is really struggling with what to do with the Gentiles, yeah. he has the vision from heaven where the Lord lay, brought down the, the covering of the sheet with all sheet. the animals. Mm -hmm. And it was clean and unclean. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So I don't think the today for us the eating of so-called unclean biblical animals is an issue. It was back then. But Jesus has made a whole new covenant with us, and then that new covenant, our relationship is with him, and he is the lamb who was sacrificed that you and I might live. Nicely done, Tom Parrish. Anybody else got something they want to add in, or should I move on? You know, I know I have a, a good friend. He's Jewish. He's a tour guide in Israel. He uh, was raised Jewish. He's actually from New Zealand and now lives in Israel and does tours there. Um, he is a born-again Christian, and we've talked about this issue of whether or not he is able to eat everything or if he still needs to follow the law of Moses or not. And to this day, you know, he still doesn't eat pork, and we've had this conversation. Sure. He understands that he can because the law has been fulfilled in him, right? He's no longer under the law. Uh, 
but that's how he was raised, and he just can't get over it. And and he he jokes. He says, "I've had bacon on my hamburger one time, and, and that's it." Um, but uh, but he gets that just like you talked about, one. Peter. Get up, Peter. Kill, eat. Nothing I've made is unclean. If you you take it with Thanksgiving, is I think the passage. He must be really disciplined. I don't know anybody could have one piece of bacon and not have one. Well, I, I saw a cartoon or a meme, whatever you want to call it, and it showed a bunch of bacon, and it said in there. You know, I've been told that for every piece of bacon I eat, I subtract a month from my life. If that's true, I should have been dead in 1675. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. (laughs) All right. uh, Thank you. Next question, I'm looking at you, Jeff Redorn, just so you know. If you guys can, could you please give a short tutorial on how to best use the Blue Letter Bible app to get the most out of it? Oh, that is, that's cool. It's one of my favorite apps. I use it all the time. I use the website all the time. I use the app on my iPhone all the time. Um, boy, a quick tutorial. Um, open the app, open the web page. You select which version of the Bible that you want to use. You type in either a passage or a keyword search, and you'll come, you'll either go to that passage or get the keyword searches. Once you click on a chapter or a verse and get to that portion of the Bible, there is a tools button on each verse. And it's a really neat tools button because what you can get at is the interlinear and you can see the Hebrew and or the Greek, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. And you can see the very Hebrew or Greek word that was used to translate into the English. Uh, so it's a, and, and you can see the definition of that word. You can also see things like verb tenses in the Greek and so on. And it's very helpful for more in-depth study. Generally speaking, we don't need to know the Greek to understand what the New Testament is saying, but sometimes it can prove to be very helpful. Uh, There's other tools such as Bible comparisons. Uh, There's cross-references that you can click on and see different cross-references that they put in there. And then there's a commentary button where you can go and check out a number of commentaries, both written and audio um, and you can spend a lot of time on Blue Letter Bible studying the Word of God. It's wonderful. What a nice tool. All right, this next question is one technically I should answer and leave you guys out of this. But the question <laughs> Go is... Go right ahead. I think I might. <laughs> In Exodus 7, how were Pharaoh's magicians able to replicate the miracles God performed through Aaron and Moses? Yeah, we agree. You're the one that can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, although I do think that some of the power that came were was from Satan. That's what I'm guessing, because these were pretty spectacular miracles. I mean, you turn uh, water to blood, and that is not a simple trick, where no. you pull something out of your sleeve and add it into the water, and it turns into real blood. I've always seen those as not a magician doing tricks, but as a spiritual power that Satan was actually involved in 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 those miracles that were perfor- being performed. Yeah. Isn't it interesting when, when Moses threw down or Aaron threw down the rod and it became the snake. And then, of course, Pharaoh smiled and his sorcerers came forward and threw down two rods and became two snakes. But Moses' snake, the rod, swallowed up the other two. I mean, there there is this... You could spend a whole lot of time just thinking about that. And I would imagine everybody in Pharaoh's court went, oh, we weren't expecting that because it shows where the real power came from. 
Now, I am a better magician than some of these guys because they were unable to summon gnats, and now I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't have a problem with. Not right here, though. No, so, not here. Yeah, okay, not here, but on a summer night, like at 930, out in an open field, I can do that. That's yes. incredible. Yeah, so thank you very much. <laughs> they, could never, they could never turn the sky dark, and they also couldn't call hailstones. I can, I can do that at a certain time of the storm. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, you know. You, are you going to show us sometime? No, or well, you... I mean, it depends on what oh, the tonight? weather's doing. No, not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I can sometimes magically open the doors of, like, a grocery store. Cool. Yeah. yeah. What? What? Yeah, what? <laughs> Rosie said, stepping on the pad. No, I just kind of wave my hands and the doors magically open. You ever it, see that? It com- work, works for other people, too, just so you know. <laughs> You ever see that commercial with the little kid? He's in this Darth Vader outfit. And he's trying to start the car. Oh, and the dad I, I love that one. Start. That's that my favorite. Yeah, I love it. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Lots more time for Guide Talk and your questions. So send them over, please. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. I've got Tom, Greg, Jeff, and we're ready for your questions. And there's some great ones coming in, so thank you for those. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Send over any question. If we stump these guys today, I'm treating myself to ice cream. So <laughs> let me know. 877-933-2484. Is there any biblical reason to believe in ghosts? My daughter believes in them, but I do not. Now, not ghosts as we, you know, like Casper the Ghost or the ghosts we see in movies or things like that. But in terms of, uh, I've dealt a lot with the occult, um, deliverance ministry. There are spirits out there, and I cannot fully explain them, and I'm not going to try to do that. But there are spirits that influence people. And I just had a gentleman call me. I'm dead serious. He said, you know, I've been bothered by every night when I go to bed, these things show up in my room. And they haven't been able to let me sleep for years. And he said, do you remember when we had the conversation three months ago and you told me, use the name of Jesus and command them to leave by a shed blood? He said, I've been doing that, and they don't come back. So there's something, I think, really real going on. We just don't fully understand it, but not ghosts in the traditional sense, but definitely evil spirits. Well, the spirit world is real. Paul says our battle is a spiritual battle. Um, I think the traditional definition of a ghost is a person that once was alive and has died and now their ghost is somehow haunting us. I think God has a specific plan for every single person, whether they're believer or non-believer, where they go when they die. So I don't know that individual souls of people who once lived and died are roaming the earth. I I don't think that's biblically possible, but I do believe there are demons in this world, and 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 I actually think they can imperson, impersonate people. And uh, so, when you're at a seance 
and someone says, uh, I'm contacting your old Grandpa Fred. You know, there's a demon that was around when Grandpa Fred was there and just might be impersonating him. And I always tell people, stay away from that stuff because... Well, God says to stay away stay from away. that stuff, right? Because there is a power there that most of us don't understand, and we don't want to get mixed up with it, and it is confusing. And it confuses people, and of course, Satan is the author of chaos and confusion. All right. Um, thank you for that. I'm. Was, my daughter just told me, my 24-year-old just told me yesterday that she believes in God, but not Jesus. I'm stunned. Not sure what I can say to even... How old was the daughter? 24. Grew up in a, you know, good family. Oh, I would love to talk to her. Going to church. I would love to sit down and have a conversation. I'm stunned and not sure what I can even say to convince her otherwise. She doesn't believe anything about Jesus is true. Do you have any suggestions? One of the things I always try to do with people under those circumstances, uh, if I can actually talk to them uh, or I tell other people, you know, say to them, well... Obviously, you know, you you have really studied the Bible and you come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't really who he said he was. Could you explain to me, you know, the the uh, seven identities of Jesus, the seven I am statements in John and why you don't believe any of those? I have as yet in all my years of living had anybody who made that comment ahead of time come back and say, well, yeah, let me tell you about how I am the resurrection of life. Most come back, oh, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. The advantage of that is I can then say to people, and we do several of these, I can say to that person, you are telling me you are betting your entire eternity, your purpose of living, your future on hearsay information. Would you do that if you had cancer? Would you do that if you had a chance to invest, you know, in some big business out there and make a fortune? No, you do your research. Let's do the research, and then you can tell me why you don't believe. I think one of the first questions I would ask her is, what was her opinion about Scripture? Because if she had any value for Scripture, whether or not she cited it, that it's inspired, but yes, she agrees with Scripture, that's the starting point. I mean, it says, you know, if you're my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the yep. truth will set you free. Our job isn't to convince somebody of the truth. Our job is to present the truth. It's the Spirit of God that convinces them of its validity. So consequently, exposing them to the Word of God, if they're open to it, if they're willing to go ahead and, and be uh, honest about their own understanding and reflect the documents, even the historicity of the Bible, even given it that kind of an attribute, to look at it and say, what does it say about who Jesus really is? And what do you do with that information? And what is the basis of you denying that he even existed? You know, one of the, the things that we need to always do when we're talking to people like this is determine are they a skeptic or are they a cynic? If they're skeptic, you simply answer the yep. questions they're asking. If they're cynic, you simply question the answers they're giving. But you do it with respect. So in the, right. the case of the daughter, well, tell me how you came to that conclusion. What evidence did you uh, arrive at or did you explore to come to that conclusion without condemnation or anything else? And if they choose to go ahead and believe what they say they're going to believe, even in the face of, of obvious uh, differences— there's not much you can do about it. You have to leave that up to the Spirit of God. The best thing he can do at that point, if she's unwilling to go ahead and have a conversation over the Scripture, is, is like we talked about it a little bit earlier, Jeff, about praying for it. Leave it on the altar of God. Mm. Pray for it incessantly. Yeah, I mean, you can't get more than a page in the New Testament <clears throat> without coming across the name Jesus. Right. So if if you are going to 
have any, uh, 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 if you're going to read the New Testament, if you're, you're going to ignore it, and you can think about whatever you want about Jesus, right? But scriptures declare that Jesus came to earth, he lived his earthly life, he taught, he was persecuted, arrested, died on a cross, and rose again. And that is what God says happened to Jesus. And by the way, he said, I'm God in the flesh. Yeah. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I think the problem is we've grown up with the Sunday school Jesus. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But the Sunday school Jesus has children on his lap. He carries a lamb around. He's so gentle and loving. We forget about the the Jesus of the New Testament, that he's also, you know, has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that he makes demands on us, that he said, nobody comes to the Father but by me. And I think a lot of young people today especially would like a God that reflects their worldview that's very generalized, doesn't have a personal name, doesn't demand anything out of them, but that spirit's out there as compared to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who demands everything out of them. Total surrender. Have Have you guys read Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? Yes. I yeah. just I read that book twenty years. A great book for a skeptic who's who is willing to read and listen to the evidence yeah. that Jesus was a real man, uh, died on a real cross, and and really rose again. I just heard a testimony from. Richard Dawkins' right-hand man for years, filmed a lot of his stuff, traveled the world with him. Richard Dawkins is one of the most famous atheists, uh, you know, in our country. And he was on a, a Ray Comfort podcast I saw him on, and he said that book, more than anything, helped him believe in, in Christ as his personal Savior. He wow. left Richard Dawkins, became a believer, and he read that book, and it was instrumental to him. So that is an idea for someone like this daughter, for this 24-year-old, a reasoned presentation yep. of the proof of Scripture, as Greg, you were talking about earlier, and the person of Jesus Christ being real. You have to wonder what, what she may be being influenced by to come to that conclusion. What ideology, what philosophy? Hmm. Uh, is it, Islamic uh, uh, thought is that God is Allah and that Jesus is simply, at the best, a prophet, but we believe in a triune God. So if she is adamant about uh, marginalizing who Jesus is, and saying, well, I do believe in God, one of the first questions I would ask is, where did she get that from? And then deal with it, because there's nothing worse than answering questions nobody's asking. So, I mean, find out what the source of it is, of her belief, and then deal with that. Isn't it really hard sometimes, though, to have those kinds of conversations with loved ones? Oh, yeah, it can be very difficult. Uh, That's not easy, because you've got so much history, and there's a lot of emotion involved. If you have, though, somebody in your church or a pastor that you trust that is exactly what Greg's talking about, somebody who's going to love them, listen to them, be respectful of them, but also know how to ask the questions and challenge them appropriately, I can't think of anything better. You know, Peter said, always be prepared to make a defense for the gospel. Well, we need to be able to do that. And I want more and more people to be trained to do that. Even though we might be fearful dealing with loved ones, dealing with these subjects, they are the very people we need to and mm. must talk mm. to yes. about these things. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Now, my next question, I don't know if we have enough time, but the nice thing is we're going to do a full hour after this. So maybe we'll go into the next hour with this. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And the question is, can you offer any clarity as to what he's talking about? Well, I, I think Paul is talking about himself. Um, he is the man who was caught up to heaven. 
um, I actually link his being caught up to heaven with Paul being stoned in Acts 14. Uh, if you recall the story, Paul is stoned and, and, and he's left by the Jews there. And the next verse says he got up and walked to the next town, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was the moment that he was most likely caught up to heaven. But he says that he was caught up to the third heaven of God, saw inexpressible things that a man was not permitted to tell. And I think he's speaking of himself in that verse, mm-hmm. that he was caught up. And that's where he received his great surpassing revelations of God. So, so for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, the gospel that I received, I pass on to you. I think he received it from direct revelation from Christ in heaven. Was that a vision about being there or was it actually being there? I think he says uh, in spirit or in body, he didn't, didn't know. know. Was that that verse or was that, that, that was whether it was in body or in yeah, spirit? Yeah, right he here, know. whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. That God was knows. Paul talking, Paul no. talking, yeah. He, so he doesn't actually, he didn't actually know whether he was physically brought up to heaven yeah. or spiritually. It's probably spiritual. Some people will use that verse as a near-death experience verse. But Paul's not having a near-death experience. Well, and if I'm right, that this is connected to his Acts 14 stoning when he was actually stoned. That was a death experience, Mm -hmm. and God sent him back and said, okay, I'm not done with it yet. Oh, okay. There you go. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll come back. Lots more guy talks, so send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Again, one more time, even slower, 877-933-2484. We'd love to get your questions There's some great questions coming in, and we'd love to get yours. So if you've been thinking about uh, asking, now's the time. Dr. Greg Borgon, Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn are my power panel. I've got quality and quantity today. So ask, ask away. We'll take a break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.